Hi, and welcome to another great life impacting message from Bridge Evangelical Christian Church. For more great content and to learn more about our church, visit becc.church. Enjoy. You have your Bibles with you? <clears throat> Please open it to uh, the letter to the church at Colossae. Book of Colossians, chapter 1. And this morning, I want to say that we are privileged. We are a privileged people to be able to open the Word of God and to find that it never changes, that the Word of God never changes, it never fails to bring us what it promises. That even though the grass withers and the flowers of the field fall, the Word of God endures forever. That even as we come to our text this morning, we are assured that God's Word brings life. For it is the Word of life. And so as we consider the letter to the church at Colossae, I'm reminded of the great cost that the Apostle Paul suffered to write these things. That he was in prison in Rome and wrote this letter at the same time as the letters to the churches at Ephesus and Philippi. In fact, there's much similarity between them. And he wrote this letter while waiting for the outcome of his imprisonment. And as we know, he would be re released, but only as a reprieve before his second and final imprisonment. And then while in prison, he received a visit from Epaphras who informed Paul of the struggles of the Colossians. And what were their struggles? They were struggling with being satisfied that Christ was enough. Now there's a very famous story by the American author Mark Twain called The Prince and the pauper. And in this story, a prince invites a poor beggar into his castle. And for fun, the two exchange clothes. And as the story goes, the, the beggar being mistaken for the prince is kept in the castle. But the prince, however, is mistaken for the beggar. Therefore, it's thrown out of the castle. Now, had the prince known that he would be thrown out of the castle, I'm sure he would never have agreed to change clothes with the beggar and that amusing himself in such simple fun could never be worth losing so much. You know, in some ways, the situation in Colossae during the first century resembled the story of the prince and the pauper. The Christians in Colossae were being tempted to exchange Christ for the practice of ungodly, pagan forms of worship. They were happy to exchange Christ for things but Christ. So Paul wrote the epistle to remind the Colossians of the tremendous riches and the royal privileges that they enjoyed in Christ and to warn them of the serious consequences of trading these blessings 
for the meager benefits that idolatry falsely offers. And you know that despite the, the many failed examples, despite the many disastrous stories that we have of people who had it all, but weren't satisfied with what they had and therefore traded what they had for something inferior, should be a warning to us. It's unfortunate that despite these examples, there are many who haven't learned the lesson that these examples bring. That there are many trotting the narrow way, only too happy to take what might appear to be a better path or a shortcut and there forsake Christ and all that they have in Him. And that's where the believers in Colossae were in danger of heading. So the Apostle Paul, informed by Epaphras, writes to warn and to correct their thinking, to readjust their GPS coordinates, if you like. And so he writes, We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Now let's ask a question here. Why and how do they have faith in Christ and love for all the saints? The answer is found in verse 5 which begins with a term of explanation. Because we give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Oops, what happened there? Because. Because of what? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. And so their faith in Christ and their love for all the saints was a result of what? The hope laid up for them in... Do you see that? That's interpreting what it says. Their faith in Christ and their love for all the saints was a result of the hope laid up for them in heaven and then realized how? Through the word of truth, the gospel. Isn't that what it says in your Bible? Doesn't say anything else? Other than that? Which is actually a What the Apostle Paul was saying here was, we heard of your faith in Christ, that you trusted Him. We heard of the love that you have for all the saints, even though we didn't see it. We heard about it, but what you need to know is these are the result of the hope laid up for you in heaven and which was brought to you through the preaching of the gospel. That you heard the gospel and by grace the grace of God, you were given the faith to believe the gospel. It's a 
Ephesians 2 verse 8. And as a result, you have faith in Christ, that He is who He claims to be, and that His work on the cross is sufficient for your salvation because He has conquered the enemy. The enemy is sin, death, and Satan. But look, it doesn't end there because now, now you have a love for all the saints. You have a love for all the saints. That's the test of faith in Christ. You have faith in Christ, then you have love for all the saints. Amen? In fact, you agape all the saints because that's what that word love back there is. You agape all the saints, unconditional love. Amen? That's another sermon that needs to be broken down. So you agape all the saints as much as you agape Jesus now. That means whether the saints are Australian, Aboriginal, Maori, Chinese, Karen people, African, you love them unconditionally. Or whether they're young, or whether they're old, or rich, or poor, or weak, or strong, or disabled, you love all the saints because you love Christ. And you have faith in Christ. You see the progression in all of this? Faith in Christ, love for all the saints, hope laid up in heaven, hearing the word of truth, the gospel, Hope laid up in heaven. What does that mean? The word hope comes from the Greek word elpis. And it is defined as a desire for some future good with the expectation of actually obtaining it. It's a desire for something in the future that you actually obtain. That's what that Greek word means. Hope in the Bible is always, always, always an expectation of something good for which we must wait for. So when the Apostle Paul refers to hope laid up in heaven, he is referring to a confident expectation that the believer has to be where? In heaven, with him. Confident expectation. And that word laid up comes from the Greek word apokemai, and it means to put something away for safe keeping. Like you put your money away in the bank. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, Peter says this about hope, hope laid up in heaven to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away but is reserved in heaven for you that word reserved means to be kept means to be guarded so that nothing can touch it 
Nothing can take it away. There will be no withdrawals from this bank account. It needs to be guarded, and Peter uses it to describe the certainty of the inheritance that the born-again have in heaven. Certain. So biblical hope is the opposite of despair. And the opposite of living hope is dead hope. Dead hope. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this about the Christian's hope when Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, according to his great mercy, caused us to be born again. God caused you to be born again. Amen. To what? A living hope. A living hope, folks. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Jesus risen from the dead for you. So you have a living hope. So every born again person has a living hope and not a dead hope. What's the difference? Well, a dead hope is exactly that. Get that? It's dead. It's lifeless. It has no confidence or no great expectation, and it is foreign to those who are born again, according to the Scriptures. Or you might be born again, and yet you don't believe you have a living hope, but that is not the Bible's fault, and that is not the character of God toward His children. A dead hope is the kind of hope we see in the world when we hear people say things like, oh, I, I hope it's not going to rain next week. And then it rains next week. Or, or when we hear people say, oh, I, I hope my mom or my, my dad hasn't got cancer. Dead hope has great uncertainty. And that is not the hope that born again people have. Instead, a living hope is exactly that. You have a living hope. It is the hope which affords the born again people of God in this world the confidence and the expectation that they will never, ever lose their salvation. That the promises of God can be trusted. You are a person who lacks hope. You are a person who probably doesn't trust God at His word. Otherwise, you would have the confident expectation of heaven. You know that hope is connected to faith. You, you can't have one without the other. Therefore, if you are a person of faith and you have hope, you cannot have faith and have no hope. 
That is why the writer of Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things what? It's the same Greek word but in the verb form. For the conviction of things not. What that means is, is what things we hope for are assured to us. How? Through the faith that has been given to us. In other words, we have hope. To be in heaven, right? I can say I hope to be in heaven. But I don't say that as someone who has a dead hope. I say that as someone who has a living confident expectation that I will be in heaven not based on who I am but based on who he is and he cannot lie and he can be trusted and his word stands forever we have hope to be in heaven and by faith we are assured that we will be Amen? That's what it says. And then the writer says, the conviction of things not seen. What does that mean? Well, it means exactly the same thing. In fact, it's better read like this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and faith is the conviction of things not seen. Do you see that? So faith is about assurance and it's about conviction. And so we have assurance of things which are hopeful, things such as our full salvation. That is the, the realization of salvation with regards to heaven because we haven't received the fullness of salvation yet. Because there's still glorification to come. Even though the Bible speaks of it in the past tense, we've not experienced it yet. You know that, Romans 8, 28, 29? You know, that those whom he predestined, those whom he foreknew, those whom he is conforming to the image of his Son, those whom he uh, justified, he will surely be glorified. And that glorified word there is past tense. Already done, but you just haven't experienced it. So we have assurance of things which are hopeful, things such as our full salvation, that is the realization of salvation with regards to heaven. And when we become absent in the body, we are assured that we will be where? Present. And we have conviction of things unseen. In other words, we are convinced beyond a doubt that the Word of God is true and that the Word of God is reliable. That is why we can believe the creation account with great conviction that Hebrews 11 verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God so that when... What? is seen was not made out of things which are visible. 
by faith. We understand, we know, we believe that the worlds were prepared. How? By the word of God. You know, it takes faith to believe that. And we wonder why the, the scientists, the, the, you know, the evolutionists, they don't get it. They can't understand who this God is. They can't believe. You know why they can't believe? Because they have not been given faith to believe. Receiving faith, folks, is not a works. It is an act of grace from God that He will give you grace. He will give you faith, sorry. And we mistake Ephesians 2 8 when we make the gift be grace but by grace he gave you what you didn't deserve grace is not the gift faith is the gift we are given faith to believe why don't people believe because they have not received the faith to believe that's why without faith it is impossible to please God So we have conviction that despite not being present on day one or any other day of creation, we are convicted that it, that it is just as it's described by God's Word. That God's Word can be trusted beyond any doubt despite the fact that we have not seen any of the evidence on that day, one, two, three, four, five, six, because we weren't there but we believe it as it's written because we have the conviction of things unseen we believe that he created all things by the word of his mouth why do we believe it because we have the conviction of things unseen and that's what it says it means what it says We have that conviction, despite not being there, that if it says it, we are convicted that it is true. That, that, that is why the doctrines of the Bible are unbelievable. That the doctrines of the Bible are unbelievable to the unsaved because they have not faith. Therefore, they have no conviction that it is true. Notice how you can share the gospel to many, many people. I've done that. I've tried my hardest to lead people to Christ. You know, more people have gone away than have come. And I've given them all the same message. And they say, well, you know, some were cleverer than the others. But once it came, Grace comes from faith to believe the gospel message, which is empowered by the Holy Spirit, because the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. That's why we preach the gospel about Jesus Christ, because it is the power of God to save people. 
You notice in the book of Revelation, the two witnesses, they will be murdered. And you know, we get this whole witnessing thing really wrong. We take it out of context and we apply our ideas of witnessing into the text, into the Bible. And we say witnessing is about, you know, getting beside people and, and you know, making them feel comfortable, making them like me, making them think that Jesus is, you know, likable, that, that their church is likable, that the Bible is believable. So we get beside them and we do our best to be nice to people. Ever read the book of Revelation? You know why those two witnesses witnesses were murdered? Because they were evangelists and they were preaching Christ. In the book of Acts, chapter one, you know what the Greek word for witnesses? The same word for persecution. Let's never get it wrong. Let's never minimize witnessing down to the level of what the world wants to believe. Let's be faithful to the Word of God. Be a witness for Christ is to lay down your life for Christ. You do that by proclaiming the gospel of Christ. It may cost you your life. If people aren't getting stirred by you, then you may not be preaching the gospel. People aren't getting upset, wanting to hurt you. You may, may not be preaching the gospel. But to be a witness for Christ is to lay down your life and put it on the line. I don't mean some fundamentalist message here. I mean the good news about Jesus. That's all we got. The good news about the world thinks they can save themselves. The unbeliever thinks he can save himself. The unbeliever thinks God needs them. The unbeliever doesn't know is that they need him more than he needs them. You know, if we consider the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we would have to say that we personally have no physical proof to prove his resurrection. I mean, us here today. We weren't there on the day when he came out of the tomb. Were you there? You were there when they crucified him. <laughs> you were all there. You were dying for our sins. We weren't there on the day when he came to life out of that. Let's consider that. We were there when he walked amongst his followers after he had risen from the dead. But you know what? We have conviction. We have conviction that the word of God is true and that Christ lives. The conviction of things unseen. You've not seen Jesus, have you? Physically? No, because he has not come yet in the cloud. Because I'm still here. <laughs> and so are you. 
we have a conviction of the things unseen. That is why the Apostle Paul said in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Belief in the heart is just another way of saying conviction. We are convinced in the heart that Christ is indeed alive. Are you convinced? Do you have that conviction? <clears throat> because without that conviction in your heart, you don't have a living hope. Because remember, a living hope comes by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've been caused to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Interesting enough, that word F, that F, that F there, interesting. It's a first class condition in the Greek. Which means that that's not a maybe that, you know, well, you know, if, if you do this, confess, your, you know, with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That is a first-class condition F. You know what that means? It means because you confess with your mouth. I'm talking to saved people. This is confirmation because you are confessing with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and because you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're going to enjoy salvation. And that gets ripped out of context, doesn't it, often? And so you, know, you just have to believe. No, that's not what that's saying. First class condition that doesn't make it say that. It's a problem with English. <laughs> it doesn't, you can't get that in the English. It's saying because you confess with your mouth. Because you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will not lose it. You will be saved. This is not a verse about the conditions of becoming a Christian. If you say something, then you have become a Christian. That is not biblical proof for that. That if one says the sinner's prayer or that if one raises their hand in an evangelistic meeting or goes forward at an altar call, then one has become a Christian. That is not the way a person gets saved. That might be evidence. But it's not the way one gets saved. In fact, the evidence found in Romans 8, the Spirit of God testifies our spirit, that we are indeed children of God. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, he is testifying in you that you are indeed a child of God. That's the evidence. And the fruit of that? Repentance. What did Jesus say? When people would get saved, he would say, right, go away and sin no more. Sin 
no more. There you go. That's how you know you are a real Christian. Sin no more. You didn't say, well, you know, because you raised your hand, you're a Christian now. Because you said a prayer, you're a Christian now. Because you went forward at an altar call, you're a Christian now. It's interesting if you do a study on altar calls, where it all comes from. You might want to stop doing altar calls. <laughs> Not that we do them here anyway. Do you see my point? you're a born-again person, then you have the confidence and the conviction that he who began a good work and you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. That's what God's saying. That gives you and I confidence that because we are confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, amen, telling people that he is Lord, that's what confessing means. And because we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, so we live as people of God who believe that Jesus is indeed risen. And that even though he died, he was raised back to life again. And the promises to us is this. If you want to gain your life, lose it. Lose it. Die to yourself. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Deny yourself. Yep, that's, that's not too hard. Take up your cross. You know what that means? It means die to yourself. It means lose your life that you might gain. born-again person, and you have the confidence and conviction that he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. But if anyone lacks that confidence, if anyone doesn't believe that, because they have either not understood the full counsel, the whole Bible, the full counsel of the Word of God, or they are not born again. They can't be. They can't be born again. Otherwise, his word's not true. His word can't be trusted by faith. It's about what? The assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. I don't get it. If anyone lacks the confidence because they have either not understood the full counsel of the Word of God, there's the counsel of the Word of God. Or that they are not born again. Because biblical hope, according to the Bible, is a sure thing. It is not an uncertainty, but a sure thing. And it is given for those who are of faith. I know some question the teaching of eternal security because they have seen people come and people go. They have seen people in the church sinning. 
nasty. Not bearing the fruit of godliness. The fruit of evil. If that's you here today, I know how you feel. When you see people come to faith and well, you think they came to faith because they put their hand up or they said a, a, a prayer or they walked the altar and yet their lives show nothing of faith in Christ. They don't talk about Him. They don't confess with their mouth Jesus is Lord and they certainly don't look like they believe that He is risen from the dead. Never, never hear them telling the gospel about Jesus. Don't even talk about Jesus. So I know how you can be struggling with that. Once saved, always saved. Let me tell you the problem is not with God. Reality is they may not have ever been God changed their hearts and gave them mighty testimony. And that would bring into question the character and the sovereignty of God that he should save the elect and adopt them as sons of God according to Ephesians chapter 1 and then disown them. The right thing to do is to not question the character of God as if he is unable to save a person properly or that he is unable to keep that which was lost, or that he is unable to meet the demands of his own word, or that he is somehow powerless to even keep his promises when it comes to saving the elect. Thinking like that puts a, a dark cloud over Scripture, and it puts a dark cloud over the character of God that causes one to believe that he is somehow strong and yet weak. God is somehow this mighty God. But he is weak at the same time and powerless. That he can't part oceans, that he, that, that he, well, sorry, that he can part oceans, that he can cause fire to burn on timber soaked in water. I mean, soaked in water. And he caused it to burn. And that he can create out of nothing the entire universe, including humanity, by his word, and yet he can't keep a person saved. But not just any person, but his own children. His own children. Well, I don't, I don't believe one has actually met the God of the Bible if one would think that way. And yet the, the real issue is the difference between a, a man-centered gospel and a, and a Christ-centered gospel. You see, a man-centered gospel centers on who? A man-centered gospel centers on men and women, people. Christ-centered gospel centers on who? Christ. It's all about Christ. Man's in the gospel, you, you can 
Tell it a mile away. Because it makes much of men. Oh, it makes something of Christ. But the Christ-centered gospel makes nothing of men. And it's all about Christ. That is the difference, folks. Because without Christ, we are nothing. Man can add to God what God lacks. That's the man-centered gospel. And so God waits upon man to do something, and then God trusts that man will continue to do well in the Christian life, but if he doesn't, then God can't help him. Folks, that's religious garbage. I'm afraid to say that that is religious garbage. That is not the gospel. That is not grace, but religion. You know, it's no mistake that the Bible refers to the saved as the children of God. Amen? Among other reasons, it's this way to help us understand the character of God. That because we are the children of God, He is the Father of you and me. He is our Father. And His fatherhood is perfect because He is perfect. He is unlike any father here today. He is unlike any father here on this earth. His fatherhood is perfect toward his children. You know what that means? It means that he cannot forsake his children. He cannot forsake his children. He will not abandon his children in some dark, cold, and dungy place you know it's akin to any father here today who is a God-fearing man I trust we have God-fearing men here today and as such you love your children and so you understand this you would ask any father here today if they would ever abandon their children, I'm confident they would reply, never. Amen, guys? Never. Why? Because they, you guys understand the love God has for you. That he has never left you, nor has he forsaken you. And he is with you always. But what if your children should hurt you and sin against you? Can you tell you? You would be upset. You might even get angry. We would offer to them discipline, correction, and help them back on the straight road. We would never abandon them because we love our children. You know, I love my children with agape love. What that means is that my children may hurt me, they may sin against me, and they may make unwise and foolish decisions, but I will never abandon my children. Because they are my children. They have come from me. 
I've cared for them, I've provided for them, they bear my name, they bear my resemblance. I love them unlike the love and care that I have for the children I work with at Fraser Park Primary School as a chaplain. Don't get me wrong, I care deeply for those kids at Fraser Park, but I don't love them like I love my own. And that would be the same for anyone here today, that, that you don't love my kids like Milani and I love our kids. And quite frankly, I would never expect you to love them like how I love them, because they are not your kids. They belong to me. And you wouldn't expect me to love your kids like you love them. Would you? You wouldn't expect me to lay down my life for your children, would you? I would lay down my life for my own kids. If I had to. And if you have the power which God has to save your children and keep them safe forever because you know it's the best thing for them, I'm confident that you being the God-fearing people that you are would never allow them to be unsafe. And yet many would be happy to say that God loves the whole world and does not want any to perish, yet he can't even keep his own children. can't even keep his own children for eternal salvation. You see how that makes a mockery of God's character and God's fatherhood. He's a father you can't even trust. Heck, I'm a better father than he is. That's what you think. But no. You can trust him laid down his life for his children not just anyone but for his children so that they would be guaranteed eternal security with him in heaven and many would be happy to say that God loves the whole world does not want any in the world to perish yet he can't spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. I was thinking the other day, you know, just God has chosen us to be part of his royal family from before the foundations of foundations of the world to be on our He has his word at stake. I was thinking, you know, it'd be silly to think that anyone here could think that they, by their own choice, choose to be part of the royal family in England. Imagine that. Imagine, you know, saying to Queen Elizabeth II, I'm going to choose to be part of your family. 
you think that's possible? People are happy to think that way about God. Here's the deal. She is not God. He is. And he works for his children that he has chosen before the foundations of the world to be saved now. If you don't believe that, I'll give you my Bible. Elect before the foundations of the world. That's why we are eternally secure. Because we were chosen before the world was created. Do you get that? That's election, folks. God in all his wisdom. Not because of who you are, man-centered gospel, but because of who he is had no other choice but to save you before the foundations of the world because had, had he not done that, he would only be compelled to condemn you to hell because none could be saved. Why? For all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. And people would have the nerve to think that, no, I'm pretty squeaky clean here, God. I'm not like that tax collector over there. I'm not like them. You know, I, I fast twice a week, maybe more times. I rock up to church every Sunday. That's the Pharisee who thought that he could get to heaven based on his what? Behavior. And his heart was far from. we made some kind of decision. Otherwise, you don't need God. But that he chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. Isn't that humbling? Doesn't that humble your hearts? You know that, wow, there's nothing I could have done to become a don't be like the Pharisee who thought that he did it all. Because there is no hope in that. Well, there is, but it's a dead hope. It is not a living hope. It's not a hope based and founded in Christ alone. Is Christ enough for you? Is he enough for you? Father God, we just want to thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, it's so unbelievable. Your word is just so unbelievable. And if we come with our uh, human 
our understanding and our human wisdom without being uh, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, without the enabling of the Holy Spirit to inspire the truth to us, to actually open our eyes and, and reveal the truth to us, without that, Lord, it will be, remain a mystery. We thank you that your word is not a mystery because you've given us the full counsel of God in 66 books preserved so that we might know you want to pray, Lord, and thank you for the fact that we have a living hope in you. We have a confident expectation because of you, not because of us. Oh, how humbling that is, Lord, when you ask your people to be humble, lest they fall. And we don't want to fall this morning, Lord. And so we just thank you that your grace, your doctrines bring us to our knees. And make very little of us, but much of you, so that we will never trust in ourselves, but that our trust will be in you. Oh Lord, thank you that faith comes from you. We believe because you have given it to us as a gift, not that we could earn it, but it came by grace. Bless us, we pray, as we look forward to the days to come, that we will live our lives as though we would want to lose our lives that, Lord, that we would want to lose our lives for the sake of the gospel, that you would be glorified, and those who have not been saved yet will come, and they will come. That's what it means when, when, when Peter wrote to the church, the churches there at Cappadocia, Bithynia, um, Asia, and, uh, and he said that they were the elect, that they were the chosen, and, and that's what he meant. When he said that the Lord is not slow as some count slowness, but that he is patient, not wishing any of the elect to perish. And oh Lord, we thank you for that. For the elect perishing. In Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to thank you. But you kissed the guilty world in love, and you saved your children from the wrath to come. Oh Lord, we praise you for your word this morning. Help us, Lord, to believe it, to study it with all our hearts and our minds. The Lord, we might be set free. As Jesus said, the truth will set you free. Oh, what a glorious life it is to be set free. As Jesus said, it is the abundant life. Oh, Lord, there are many missing out on the abundant life. There are many acting in ways like they have no life. Oh, Lord, Bring them the good news. Open their hearts and their minds and give them faith to believe. Thank you, Lord, that we have an eternal hope and the assurance of our salvation. That what the Word says, that he who began a good work in us will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ, we can trust. Doesn't mean we can sin. Doesn't mean we can live loose lives because those in faith don't. They are transformed by the power of God. They are sanctified to obey the word of God, the commands of Jesus Christ. They live for the glory of God. So we thank you, Lord, that you have achieved for us and done for us what we could never do. We 
O Lord, help us to live for you the way you call us to. Help us to reach the loss as you've commanded us to. Tell the good news. To preach it around the whole world. Starting from home. Starting from Murray Bridge. Starting from this country. And then let us go forth. Why? Because we love you. You said if you love me, we will obey you. Thank you, Lord. For your glory we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.